0: Go to the book of Matthew, chapter 7, if you've got a Bible. And uh, we are going to continue on in our series on Jesus' famous Sermon on the Mount, which uh, it's not lost on me that Jesus preached a very, very short sermon a couple thousand years ago, and we're preaching a whole bunch of really long sermons on that one short sermon. Um, But the point is that we want to know this sermon well, we want to get it, we want to understand it, we want to internalize it, and we want Jesus' vision for his kingdom on earth to become the beat of our hearts as well, and how we see ourselves in relationship with God and one another, and participating in the work of God in the world to reconcile all things to himself through Christ. And so um, as we come to chapter 7 this morning, I won't recap the whole sermon thus far, but it is uh, fascinating at times to come back to some of these really familiar teachings of Jesus about planks in eyes and uh, the golden rule and some of those famous Jesus quotes and realize that they were actually given in the context of a sermon. Um, And so sometimes the context surrounding uh, those kind of famous quotable moments um, actually helps us understand them and uh, and and get even a little bit more comfortable with them than we would be simply in our familiarity. so um, so this morning. I'm not going to do anything fancy. We're going to kind of just move through the passage. And uh, I'm trying to kind of pull a few common threads through the teaching that would help us really understand what Jesus is trying to do here. And some of these interesting metaphors and scenarios that he uses, what's he trying to do in the lives of his hearers? And I would argue at the top of that list, Jesus is hoping to impart a kingdom consciousness to the community of disciples that would come after him. He's not simply interested in modifying our behavior, although that's certainly contained within a life of discipleship, but he's trying to change our consciousness. He's trying to impart a new way of seeing, a new way of understanding, a new way of experiencing and living um, that affects everything. Everything. And so what Jesus is focusing on in these few verses really has a lot to do with what we pay attention to and how we evaluate the status or the health of various relationships that are core to our life and to our faith. And so Jesus is not just giving a list of rules on what we should and shouldn't do, but he's calling us to do some serious work of self-examination. And to, he's calling us to pay attention to what we pay attention to. And he's calling us to think deeply about the way we image God, the picture of God that we have, and how that picture affects our entire life. And so this is hard work. This is the inner work that the disciple is called to do on a regular basis. So yes, there's a hands and feet element of discipleship that we just get up and go and we do what Jesus calls. But he's also saying, I want to impart a kingdom consciousness to you. My vision and my heart, my desires and my will would become yours. And so under the heading of paying attention, I think we could look at this passage and pull out three specific areas where Jesus calls us to direct our attention as a way of life to develop an awareness of these different relationships and dynamics. And so... um, So I I would argue that this whole thing about the plank in your eye and the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and that whole thing, there's lots of different application points we could pull out of that. But I think that the main characteristic Jesus is trying to impart to his followers is that of self-awareness, self-attentiveness. He wants his people to pay attention to their own lives. So that's what he calls them out for there in verse Three, you're paying attention to the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye, but you pay no attention to the plank in your own eye. So this whole metaphor has to do with are you looking at yourself and your life? Are you watching yourself closely? And specifically, the metaphor of, of sawdust and planks has to do with our sin, our brokenness, the ways that we have failed to live the life God has called us to. And he's like, you can go around and pay attention to everybody else's sin and failure and shortcoming. But that's what the hypocrites do. So don't be a hypocrite. Instead, pay attention to your own life. And it's almost like this is a secret that actually leads us into an authentic, reconciled relationship with God and one another and ourselves. So Brendan Manning said it this way at one point he said at sunday worship when we do this as in every dimension of our existence many of us pretend to believe we are sinners consequently all we can do is pretend we have been forgiven so as a result our whole spiritual life is pseudo repentance and pseudo bliss right he's going here's what happens if we aren't actually doing the hard work of self examination confession paying attention to our own life and sin. We go through life pretending that we're sinners and therefore only pretending that we've been forgiven and therefore never actually getting to taste of the abundant eternal life that Jesus is offering to his people here and now. So first point is pay attention to your life. Pay attention to your life. Instead of your focus being on everybody else's sins and shortcomings, he says you should be deeply acquainted and familiar um, with your own. So I showed you this chart a few months ago when we were going through our formation series. But this is known as Johari Window. And it's a tool that's been used by psychologists and counselors for many decades now. And it's something that reveals the reality of what's true about every single person that every one of us has all four parts or all four of these places uh, within our lives. We have those places that would be open spaces, the things that we know about ourselves and so do the people around us. And then we have blind spots, those things that other people know about us that we don't know about ourselves. And then we have hidden places in our lives, things that uh, we know about ourselves but others don't. And then finally we have unknown places in our lives that which neither we nor the people around us know. And ultimately, God does, of course. But the truth is, every single one of us, our being, our soul, our existence, and our story is made up of all four of these kinds of places. And um, I think it's valuable simply to acknowledge that there are blind spots in my life There are things that God and others see about me or know about me that I don't know about myself. How does that make you feel? A little vulnerable, right? Some people are really frustrated, like, why don't you guys just tell me? I can take it. Um, Others of us, we just assume that all those blind spots are bad things. They might be good things. There might be good things about you that that you don't know, but other, other people do, right? So... The journey towards self-awareness or paying attention to our lives um, includes the acknowledgement that there are places in my life that I'm not seeing. There are tendencies or sinful patterns or even addictive behaviors and ways of operating dominated by my personality that I'm not even aware of. But they're so prevalent and so strong in my relationships and every other part of my life that it's almost as comical or as crazy as a two-by-four sticking out of my eye. And I'm going around pretending I don't even know that it's there, right? That's how Jesus paints this picture. And so, um, so even this morning, my invitation would be, would we take this time and go, God, what are some of my blind spots? What are some of the unknown spots in my life that you want to speak into, that you want to breathe life into, that you want to bring healing and redemption and hope into. So it's scary and vulnerable feeling to know that we have blind and unknown spots, but those are the exact places where God wants to work his uh, sanctification and resurrection power to transform us into something we wouldn't be otherwise. So here's another way of putting it. Three secrets that every single one of us have. Next slide. We, there is something about yourself that you don't tell others. There's something about yourself that others don't tell you. And finally and ultimately, there's something about yourself that God wants you to know. Okay? So I'm convinced that this is always true. We never graduate or move on from these three secrets. They are always present and true about each of us. And they are shaping and affecting our entire lives. That which we keep hidden... That which others keep hidden from us and ultimately that which God would ask us to seek out and to be shown by him. And so the reason this is so important to talk about where are these places that we are blind or unknown or hidden within ourselves, our sinful tendencies, our broken patterns, um, whatever it is, is that transformation can begin when the unknown becomes known. When the unknown becomes known, when that which we don't know about ourselves or others is revealed, that is the first step in this process of transformation, of us being made whole and and reconciled with God. And so that's the whole conversation around specks and planks. Jesus is saying it's not just that we have planks and so we should just get used to the idea. He's saying we need each other. In the context of community, he uses the language of brother, right? So that's a familial um, picture that we are brothers and sisters in Christ and we need one another to help us see the blind spots. We need one another to be able to walk together with, to journey together, and to uncover those places where God wants to breathe his life and lead us deeper into Jesus. And so the courageous step for any of us, would be, would I be willing to take a look and assume that I have blind spots that other people see and I don't and that there's something that God wants to show me? So first and foremost, the encouragement I would give you would be to cultivate that in your prayer life that the content of your prayers would include self-examination, asking God to open your eyes to the plank in your eye, to the thing that you don't see that he sees and wants you to know. Not for the sake of simply being guilty and condemned and feeling bad, but for the sake of him getting to do his miracle working power in you. So firstly, before God. And then secondly, we need each other. That's the picture here, that we need each other to help identify and carefully pull things out of each other's eyes. And so um, the hope is that we would be this kind of community where we're able to have these conversations and be vulnerable and trusting with one another, trusting enough to let us poke things in each other's eyes. Like That's a pretty intimate, uh, vulnerable metaphor. And so... um, so, some of us have those kinds of friends in, in, in the church, and others of us, that's something that we'll need to pursue and say, I'm looking for these kinds of people in these kinds of relationships. And so, first and foremost, we're learning to pay attention uh, to our own lives. So... Um, Some of you guys, this sounds incredibly familiar, like in the last 24 hours, right? We had an Enneagram seminar yesterday, and uh, 20 or 30 of you guys, uh, we got to spend the day kind of digging into this journey of self-awareness. And I told you, you didn't have to come today, because you were just getting a repeat, but good for you. Um, But for me, this has been a tool, and I'm not like, (sighs) Enneagram's basically the new CrossFit um, for Christians, right? And I don't want to jump on that train or whatever, but... um, But it has been a super helpful tool for me. And I'll just, I'm not plugging the tool, but here's my process that God has used this uh, personality typing system to actually expose some of my blind spots and unknown spots. And so on the Enneagram, I'm what's called a type nine, which is a peacemaker. Clearly Jesus' favorite number of all nine. He said we're blessed. Um, So um, what that means is that um, I'm actually... Uh, Well, here's what I would say. Peacemaker would be a a pretty aggressive uh, name for somebody like me. A peacekeeper is probably more true, right? Meaning I'm not going to actually engage conflict and try to bring about transformation. I'm just trying to keep things super chill all the time, right? Like that's the functional drive in my life is just if I could be an inanimate object, that would be amazing, and if nobody needed anything from me, expected anything from me, demanded anything from me, and I could just kind of sit in the corner, um, it sounds incredible, okay? Any other nines in the room? Okay. <laughs> I know it's hard to hold your hand up that hard, so that high. Good job. Um, So for nines, we would say, why would you stand if you could sit? Why would you sit if you could lie down? Um, The path of least resistance always makes the most sense. And um, for me, my instant default reaction to any invitation anybody gives me is, I'd rather not. It doesn't matter. It, It doesn't matter if it's an invitation to do something I like with people I like. My default instinct is, I'd rather not. And that's kind of just how I roll. So, um, now, there's some funny, quirky parts about each of our personalities. The journey to transformation that starts when the unknown becomes known also has to do with understanding how um, our sin has actually damaged and harmed the relationships that are most central to the life God's given us. Right? So, um, there's funny parts and quirky parts about me being a peacemaker who's given to passivity and laziness and conflicted version. Um, and for the most part, it makes me a pretty chill guy that you guys would like to hang out with. Um, but it can also set me up to really hurt people and to damage my relationship with God and the people I love and the damage my relationship with myself. And so I realized this early on in my journey of self-awareness that there have been places in my life where really important relationships and people I valued had been hurt because of my, um, my uh, refusal to engage conflict, to have hard conversations, to make difficult choices, and to just kind of stand back and hope things Um, would go, okay. And so the first data point on that journey for me was a story of when I was 21 years old and I broke up with my girlfriend so gently that she didn't realize we had broken up (laughs) for six months. And I know that's even hard to understand how that could happen. Um, I don't really know either, but I thought I was being a really loving, gentle Christ-like guy letting her down in the easiest possible way. Um, And I really did think that and realized in retrospect, that's not cool. Like, that's not nice. Uh, That's not a loving way to, to end a relationship if you have to. And so your greatest strength is often your greatest weakness. So I am able to actually drop bombs on people in a way that they can thank me for. Right, I can speak the truth in a lot of love, and it's one of the gifts God's given me, both in this role and in other relationships. Um, And that's a good thing, and I'm learning to live into that more. But there's also times where, due to this fear of conflict, this fear of disruption or whatever, um, that, that I'm too passive and too shaded and too... Uh, too protected to actually say the hard thing or do the hard thing or whatever it is. And so I've got plenty of other stories all about this kind of stuff. Um, Some of them are funny. Some of them aren't. But I am constantly finding myself now in this pattern of wanting to say, God, what is it that you see in me that I don't see? What do I need to pay attention to in my own life Because I don't want to be this dude for the rest of my life. I want to keep growing up into Jesus. I want to be the most Christ-like version of myself. And that journey begins when the unknown becomes known. And so in your prayers in, in your conversations and with community. And then the final aspect would be sometimes we just need help too. We need a counselor or we need a spiritual director or we need a pastor that can actually walk us through some of our pain and trauma and our story, some of our blind spots and struggles. And so, um, so I'd encourage you, if you feel the need to take that step, then definitely do. Um, the final thing I'll say on that little chunk is that There's obviously this dynamic when it comes to uh, followers of Jesus not practicing self-awareness that we become prone to become judgmental. That if we're not examining our own lives carefully, then he says you're going to fall into the trap of going around constantly pointing out and looking down on other people in what he calls judging. Judging. Right, So he's not saying, obviously he's not saying don't practice good judgment. He's saying don't be judgmental. And if we want to protect ourselves from being judgmental, then it has to do with, uh, in, a, in a real sense, instead of judging others, um, judging our own sin. And so Tony Campolo famously says that we're used to hearing that we should love the sinner but hate their sin. That's the exact opposite of what Jesus commands. He says we should love the sinner and hate our own sin. Isn't that great? So I think we all know that Christians would do well to take that advice and to take this more seriously. And uh, this is one of the main parts of our reputation in the world that we live in, that Christians are thought of as being judgmental, as being hypocritical, as being those that are arrogant and look down on others. And Jesus is just saying, that cannot be the case. Love the sinner. Hate your own sin. So pay attention to your life. Pursue self-awareness. Secondly... Um, He moves on to this picture uh, about asking and knocking and seeking and then uses this metaphor in verses 9 through 11 of kind of a father and a son situation to try to help us understand the importance of the images we have when it comes to God and how they shape our entire life and faith. And so firstly, um, the teaching is to pay attention to your life and second is really simple, pay attention to to your relationship with God. If we want to live with a kingdom consciousness, if we want to thrive in our discipleship and faith as followers of Jesus, then it sounds like a no-brainer, but it's surprisingly difficult. Live with a cultivated attentiveness to your relationship with God. In general, we measure those things that value the most to us. If we're somebody that really values finances and our investments and our savings and our checking account and all that kind of stuff, if that's the thing that you really value, then you're going to be somebody who pays attention. We talked about that last week with the stock market, right? You're going to know where, you, where your money is and how it's doing and that sort of thing. Others of us, money's not a big deal, but there are certain things that we pay attention to. If we're some sort of athlete or I've heard there's people that work out. Um, and I, some of you may be those people or know them. Um, if that's the thing you pay attention to, right? You're, you're measuring your progress. You're measuring your times. You're measuring your waistline. You're measuring your weight or whatever it is. The things that are important to us, we measure. And that's, that's okay. That's fine. Um, if our relationship with God is the central aspect of our existence and identity as followers of Jesus, then we need to figure out how do we evaluate or assess How we're doing in that relationship. Okay? And so, um, if I were to ask you this question, if maybe you come into my office um, to meet with me as your pastor, and I ask you a really simple pastor question How's your relationship with God going? Um, And then you take a moment and you start to answer. And for so many of us, myself included, we have a default set of criteria that we use to answer that question. So many people that I've asked that question would say, well, I guess it's going pretty good. I read the Bible four times this week. Um, I prayed every morning. Um, I, didn't, I didn't yell at my wife like I did last week. Um, I guess it's going pretty well. Right, And so... That, nobody ever tells us that that's how we have to evaluate our faith, but we pick up those things uh, in the Christian cultures that we're in. Or maybe we have a whole different set that doesn't look like piety, but it's more this like progressive activist kind of expression of our faith, right? That I protested and marched against this thing, and I clicked that on Facebook, so now I feel like I've done my part. And, you know, whatever our kind of way of justifying or measuring how we're doing with God... And what I want to say is that that invisible grid or set of criteria is incredibly powerful. And that's what Jesus is starting to challenge here in these metaphors he's using. He's going, how do you think about God? How do you imagine your relationship with God? What's the picture or the metaphor that functions as as your operational default mode of thinking and relating to God? And so my challenge for you, and I... I I don't even know how to implement this this morning other than just encouraging you to think about it and take some time this week uh, to wrestle with it, is what are a few good questions you could ask yourself that would actually help you assess the health and maturity and status of your relationship with God? What are the right questions? There's nothing wrong with reading the Bible every day and praying. You should be doing that. We would all do well in our faith to do that. But we also know that there's, beyond the quantitative, there's other ways that God is calling us to invest and enjoy a relationship with him. So, for example, instead of just saying, how many times did I read the Bible this week? You could ask, how much am I enjoying my time in scripture? Right? Or, um, how often am I sensing God's presence in my daily life? Or how am I experiencing myself being changed to be more like Jesus? Am I finding myself loving those who have been hardest for me to love, including myself? Or whatever it is, I don't think there's a universal set that we all need, but we need, Jesus is saying, when we think about our relationship to God, it matters which questions we ask. It matters which set of criteria we use. And that will be exposed in the contents of our prayers. That will be exposed in the vocabulary and the culture that we create as a church community. And, uh, and ultimately, it will be exposed in our inner life as we give voice to these various metaphors and that sort of thing. And so the metaphor that he gives us in 9 through 11 is, Which of you, if your son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? Just a really beautiful, simple uh, mental experiment. Jesus is saying, okay, imagine the kind of relationship you would like to have with your kids. Now, think about God that way. Think about God as a good, good father. Think about a God who has no other motivation or goal in this relationship other than to love you. Now how, what set of questions would you use to evaluate the status of that relationship? Am I living as the one in whom Christ dwells and delights? Am I living in the unshakable kingdom of God? Am I experiencing, on a regular basis, my significance and my security as one who is in Jesus and therefore perfectly loved and accepted just as I am? Those are easy answers to say. It's hard work to get there, isn't it? And Jesus sang, so pay attention to your thoughts, your images, your view. And your criteria by which you evaluate the status and the health of that relationship. So think about that this week. Maybe even jot down for yourself three questions you would use to say, where am I at with God? Not in the ultimate sense of your, you know, eternal security or something like that. Just like, how's our relationship going? How are, we, how are we spending time together experiencing each other? That sort of thing. Okay. All right. So first, we're paying attention to ourselves. Secondly, we're paying attention to our relationship with God. And then thirdly, as we get to the golden rule in verse 12, so in everything, do for others what you would have them do for you. This sums up the law in the prophets. And so finally, we pay attention to the lives of others. We pay attention to ourselves, to God, and to others. So it's really interesting. This is a, one of the, if not the most famous, one of the most famous lines of Jesus. Right, What we understand to be the golden rule and almost every other religion or worldview has their own version of this. Sometimes it's flipped on the other side where it says don't do to others what you don't want them to do to you. Jesus tends to emphasize it's not just that we're not doing bad stuff, but we're actually called to do good to one another. Um, the good that we would like done to ourselves. And so the golden rule, if you think about it, actually assumes the characteristic of self-awareness. In order for us to love others as we would want to be loved, it invites us to pay attention to how would I want to be treated? What are the needs that I need met? What are the ways that I can receive love? What are the ways I would want people to treat me? So that actually requires some reflection, some attentiveness, Maybe even some prayerful thought. At our uh, pastor's retreat a couple weeks ago, we walked through, uh, one part of it was just a simple exercise on love languages. And maybe you've read the book, The Five Love Languages. It can be helpful in marriage, um, but it can also be helpful in work and and ministry environments. And so we kind of went around the room and everybody on the team shared, here's the ways that I feel loved. Here's the ways I receive love. Um, love, And so they're like quality time and words of affirmation and acts of service and physical touch and gifts. gifts. There it is. So there's those five, but then there's others. So Jen and I did this at a marriage workshop a number of years ago and uh, realized very clearly that her love language is quality time by herself. So... <laughs> Um, Not that she doesn't like me, but especially being a young mom and all that kind of thing, one of the ways that I can love and serve her is by giving her space. And if I take the kids and let her go do whatever she wants to do, get coffee or shopping or go for a run or whatever. Um, And so we all have different ways of receiving love. For me, Jen realized recently that it's probably acts of service and the way she would put it is, you really like it when people do stuff for you so you don't have to do it. And um, that's that's pretty true as well, so um, so there is this you know whole other self awareness part of going well how do I Jesus seems to invite me to consider how I want to be treated. He seems to be inviting us to think about how do I experience and receive love. And in the context of Christian community, those kinds of conversations have been, uh, can be really helpful. But even beyond that, he's actually calling us from the other perspective to imagine ourselves in the shoes of the other. Not just if I were me, how would I want to be treated, but if I were them, if I was you what would I want? And this becomes incredibly valuable for us as we develop a kingdom consciousness that we're not simply looking at the events of the world and the problems of life and the injustices in society from our own perspective, but this is essentially an invitation to empathy. Can you enter in to the life and perspective and the story of another? As a white male American, it would be easy for me to think about everything that's happening in the world simply through my own blue eyes. But Jesus seems to be inviting us to take ourselves out of our own self, put ourselves in the shoes of others, and say, how would I feel about this if I were an African American? How would I feel about this if I was a woman? How would I feel about this if I was a Muslim? What would I see differently if I was a refugee or if I was an immigrant or if I was part of the human trafficking circuit? How would that shape the way that we engage loving our neighbors? So, This takes some work, doesn't it? It's not simply saying, I'm going to treat people the way I want to be. How to see the world through the eyes of others. I'm going to learn how to love people by pursuing a shared understanding of history. And it's going to make things a little bit less black and white at times because it's going to humanize those that I would want to marginalize. And it's going to call me to validate the image of God in those that I would simply want to reduce to the enemy. And so what I'm convinced of is that as we pursue self-awareness, practice self-attentiveness, it's going to produce in us a social awareness. It's going to expand our heart and our conscience to love those that are hardest for us to love. And to serve those that uh, we would tend to ignore. And so when we are aware of our own pain, our own struggles, our own need for love and affirmation, we begin to empathize with others in their pain and struggles. And that's how this teaching actually has the power to produce the kind of people that the world needs most a whole kingdom community of Jesus' disciples that are so secure in their identity as those loved by God that they don't need to size themselves up by judging and looking down on those who aren't like them. And people that are practicing this beautiful, imaginative, prayerful, creative engagement of thinking, what would it be like to be in someone else's shoes? These are the people the world needs most. Secure in our love and freed up to serve and to love the world. And so the golden rule invites us to contemplate. It invites us to compassion. It invites us on a journey of becoming like Jesus. And so we come to this table every Sunday as an invitation to commune with the, the God who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? The God who made us, the God who knows us, the God who loves us, the God who sees everything about us on every part of the window, the God who knows your brokenness and your messed up nature better than you will ever know it. And that's the crazy, vulnerable part of the invitation of the gospel is that. God is actually the only one who has the right to judge us. But instead, in Jesus, God was judged for us. God absorbed our guilt, our shame, everything we deserve because of our brokenness and our rebellion against him. So the only one who could see perfectly enough to remove the plank from our eye He took that plank, and he was nailed to it. And so we come on this journey towards self-awareness, God-awareness, other awareness, not to justify ourselves, not to feel better about ourselves, not to work our way up on God's sliding scale of approval. We come as those loved and accepted. Our sins are forgiven. The Spirit is given. We are united with Christ, and he invites us to find life in him and be his life to the world. So I'll invite you to come to the table this morning. Will you stand and pray with me? Father, we are once again humbled by this divine invitation to come and to find life, to receive identity, And forgiveness and salvation from you again. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for your incredible faithfulness to the Father. The life that you've lived in our place, the death that you've died on our behalf. That you've risen from the dead. You've imparted us with your spirit. And invited us to find ourselves in you. So I'm grateful for this community called Antioch, for my brothers and sisters. And we are pleading with you that you would not let us fall into these traps that you've warned us about. Traps of ignorance, traps of judgmentalism, traps of hypocrisy. We don't want to be those kind of people. And so I pray that you would convict us of our sin, that you would open our eyes, that you would give us the courage to pursue knowing that which is previously unknown that you might be glorified in us in our community and relationships and the way that we engage as those sent to love and serve and die for those around us so we trust you we thank you for your presence and your power here with us in this moment we worship your name in jesus name we pray